All of God's people said? Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, this morning and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, as we look at God's Word together. There's a lot of debate sometimes over the power of a name. There are some people that believe names mean nothing. That they're just part of our conversations. They don't really impact other things. Uh, Shakespeare, for example. You like it that I'm pulling Shakespeare out this morning? Shakespeare, for example, said that a rose by any other name would still smell sweet, right? So in other words, he said it doesn't matter about the name or what you call it. Then there are others, and really you could go online, you could look at in other resources and research the different studies that talk about how a name impacts a person's psychology, maybe characteristics, maybe even determines the success of an individual. I was reading this week about the different types of companies that seem to gravitate to certain names, certain short names, which was incredible to look at. There's a lot of debate over whether the name means something or whether it means nothing. But I would say to you today that as we come to this place, we know that there is one name that stands out above every other, and I can guarantee you it means something. It is significant because within it is the only authority and salvation that we can ever know, and that is the name of Jesus. That is the name that draws us together as his people. That is the name that we share when we baptize. It is the name that we share when we take of the Lord's Supper. It is the name that we share when we preach or we teach. It is the name that has the power to make a difference in our lives. We're convinced of that. And that is the reason we come, we gather around the name, which is synonymous, obviously, with the person of Jesus. We come to gather around him and to hear from him and to see his word. I want you to see today as we look at this passage in particular, that the early apostles proclaimed that the name of Jesus was the name that was authoritative. It was the name that brought salvation. And it is the name that not only did that then, but it is the name that does it now. So I want to share that with you this morning. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4, but let me bring you up to speed. The church is growing. God is doing some amazing things. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go up to the temple. And as they go to the temple, they see this man who has been lame since birth. For 40 plus years, we're told later on, he had been lame. And as they are there and he is entreating them for alms, basically what happens is Peter expresses the authority of Jesus' name. And he speaks to this individual and this individual begins to walk. God brings healing to this man. And there was much praise and there was much excitement. And of course, in this moment when people are gathered, what does Peter do? Well, he does what any good preacher is going to do. He's going to preach. He's going to share the name of Jesus. And he's going to give a message somewhat similar to the message he gave on Pentecost. He's going to give just a basic gospel message of who was responsible for this and how people can have salvation through Jesus. Well, that causes quite a stir among the temple's hierarchy. You could imagine when all of these people are hearing Peter teach and preach that they begin to challenge him. And the scripture says that the captain of the temple, which is the assistant, if you will, to the high priest and the guards, they come 
and they arrest Peter and John. It says behind this arrest, especially, would, that, would be that faction called the Sadducees. The Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ruling group. They, they, they really uh, maintained the priesthood. They maintained the power. The Sadducees, they rejected any talk of the supernatural. As a matter of fact, they did not believe there were such things as miracles. They did not believe there were such things as the resurrection. That's the reason they were sad, you see, right? Bad joke. Bad joke. That's the reason Leslie tells me never to joke in the pulpit. They didn't believe any of that stuff. So they challenge, they challenge Peter and John. I think they challenge them theologically, but they're also challenging them politically. Because when you open chapter 4, you see that as they are challenging the resurrection of the dead, but they're also challenging the idea that Jesus was the Messiah and thus a power figure for them. And they're challenging Peter and John both theologically and politically. They throw them in jail overnight, perhaps, to, perhaps that they will cool off maybe and everything will settle down. But the next day, they bring Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin of the Jewish people was like the Supreme Court of our land. It was comprised of like 71 elders and they would sit in semicircles. They would hear the arguments and they would pass their judgment. They were brought before the Sanhedrin. The same group that just weeks earlier condemned their rabbi, their master, their savior, and their Lord to death. Get this. They are brought now into the very pit of hostility to face the charges of preaching Jesus. The high priest, the leadership, they look at Peter and John and they say, by what authority do you do this? How do you have the power to preach and to teach something of this magnitude? And here we finally arrive in verse 8. That's where I want us to pick up in Peter's reply. In verse 8, it says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, I could, I could stop there and just kind of preach a little bit. You know I could, right? I mean, Peter's a different man now. He's not the same guy that denied Jesus three times. Now he is bold, and now he is ready to speak for Jesus and stand for him before even the threat of persecution. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come. It makes a whole lot of difference. The Holy Spirit has come, and he has seen the resurrected Lord. It says, him being filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Don't you love the boldness to stand in that, in that place of threat and persecution and for him to stand with such boldness? He answers them and he says, first of all, I understand that the charge before us is that we healed this lame man. And somehow it seems that you are finding some type of fault with us doing good to this man. Now that seems unnatural, does it not? Even in Peter's initial response, it's kind of like, you're not happy that this man has been healed? Unfortunately, there are too many folks out there that miss the blessing of God and the favor of God. They're too worried about trying to figure out all these different things or maybe trying to protect their own kind of theology or their perspectives. And they miss just the excitement of what God is doing. And, and just to be honest, they forget just to sometimes stop and celebrate. You know what? In this narrative, a man has been healed, Peter said. He said, you could, you could go and he would, he would stand before you. Did you catch that? Like this one who is standing before, he could stand before you right now. Remember, he couldn't stand beforehand, but when the power of God went through him through the name of Jesus, then he was able to stand. You could call him here to testify if you would like. I think Peter could have said also, though, you might have to run him down now because he's not limited in any way. And the last time we saw him, the last time we saw him at the temple, he was leaping and he was praising. So you may have to, you may have to put your own jets on so that you can run him down because he's so excited about what the Lord Jesus has done for him. But in any case, whether or not you're excited about it or not, he said, let me tell you the authority that we had. Let me tell you the power that God has given us. He said, you let it be known and let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel. We want everyone to hear this. That it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is by his name, his identity, his person. The one whom you crucified, notice that, still part of that gospel message. He died and he really did die. And yet, whom God raised from the dead. The one that had the power to bring life is the one who has power and authority to give to us so that we can see life brought, so that we can speak in his name. So if you want to know the authority by which we speak, we speak by the authority of Jesus, the Christ. That is the truth. That is the power that we have. And listen, there is no other truth and there is no other power like that one given to us by Jesus. There is no other name that brings such authority. They had rejected that truth, though. And he points that out by their uh, condemnation of Jesus and obviously by their continual rejection of who he is, even after the, re the re resurrection, they have rejected Jesus and his identity. They've rejected the power and the authority. And yet they thought they were the ones that spoke for God. They believed that they were the authorities of the day. And basically Peter says, you think you've had authority, but what you're trying to do is lead an insurrection. An insurrection? 
Yes, you are trying to somehow upend the messiahship of Jesus. You think you are the authority. You're trying to lead a spiritual coup. Let's call it that. Where do you get that from, Reggie? Where do you see that? Because in verse 11, it says that he was the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118, 22. The psalmist had predicted that the Messiah would come in such a way, and yet they would reject him because they would rather cling to their own power, their own authority. They were leading a spiritual coup. Oh, but they thought they were right. They were entrenched in their authority, their power, their rightness. You know, there are so many people today still that think they're right. You know, I heard an old um, saying one time about us Baptist preachers in general. It says, we may, ne- we may not always be right, but we're never in doubt. <laughs> Unfortunately, there are too many of us that feel like we're right. And, and I know this will sound weird. But here, and I know this sounds strange because they believe theirs is the only way, but in a sense, it is that relativism of, okay, you do what's right in your own eyes. Remember in the book of Judges where they did what was right in their own eyes. And here they're doing what they believe is right. They even have a form of godliness. And truly here they're denying the power of of the Lord Jesus, even though they have a form of of godliness. I say to you that we need to understand that there is one authority and one truth and one power that all of this world has to answer to. Even when we feel like we're right and we're entrenched and we can make the arguments on our case, understand that ultimately we must bow before the God of heaven and his truth, his authority. It doesn't matter who we are. But, but there's so many different truths. No, they're not. Don't believe that lie. Well, you, yes, there, there's some people have... No, 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 no. There is one truth and there's one authority. His name is Jesus. And that's what Peter's saying here. Peter said, I know you think you have authority and I know that it seems like that you've got it figured out, but I'm telling you, That Jesus is the only authority and power. When we talk about his being the power and he's the only one, understand we're not talking about preference here. All of us have preference, right? And preference can vary. There's no big deal over preference. Whether you like Coke or Pepsi, that can be a preference, right? I used to like Pepsi, but my eyes have seen the light and have joined the Coke side now. It's a preference whether you like Blue Plate or Hellman's. Blue Plate's always better. Even when my mom tried to trick me when I was younger, you wouldn't think a mama would do something like this, would you? Where she emptied the Hellman's jar into a Blue Plate jar just to try to convince me that I really did like it. I knew it. I knew. I knew what she was doing. We all have preferences. But listen, 
I don't care what your preference is about faith or religion or whatever else. I'm going to tell you that Jesus is above all of our preferences. He's not a preference for us. He is the authority and the truth for us. And that's what Jesus is saying, what Peter is saying here, is that it's not about you and your ruling authority. It's about Jesus and his authority and what he has done to bring healing to this man. But too often, I I bring up those preferences because I'm going to tell you a lot of people today, they just choose their faith, their religion, whatever else, just on their preference. It's no more than whether they chose Pepsi or Coke. It's no more whether they chose Blue Plate or Hellman's. And yet God is so much more majestic than that. The Lord Jesus deserves more than just such a glib preference pick. Some would say, but it seems so arrogant to say that he's the only one of authority. Let me ask you this. What is more arrogant? That you will not bend to the God of this universe and to his word and his truth. Or for you to willingly say, God, you know what? I know I don't have true authority and power. I know I am wrong on my own. I know that you have sent the Lord Jesus. You have sent him to die for me to be resurrected. And I commit myself to him and to his truth. What is more arrogant? I submit to you that it is much more arrogant for you and I to decide what the truth is rather than to humble ourselves before his truth. And those who would claim to be so humble and yet... They have decided for their own selves. They've done what is right in their own eyes instead of what is right in God's eyes. I I would say to you that there needs to be an evaluation, a checkup, and there needs to be repentance that we would humble ourselves before a God of all authority and truth. So much relativism is going on around us that it's okay for anything and everything. There's no objective truth. I will tell you that relativism enslaves people to their sins. But truth, authority, the power of Jesus frees them from their sins. You shall know the truth. John says it. He records it for us. And it actually records the words of Jesus for us. And he says, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. It is the objective truth of the Lord Jesus, his authority and his power. Later on, Peter will say here to this Sanhedrin in verse 19 and verse 20. No matter what you say to us, no matter what you command to us, we must continue to speak of the Lord Jesus. Because... Peter and John knew that their authority was not the Sanhedrin. That their ultimate authority was Jesus. So his is really the only name that matters as it it relates to authority and power. I would also suggest to you in this reply of Peter's, we see that Jesus' name is the only one that matters in relationship to salvation. Because Jesus' name is the only name that brings salvation. Very closely tied to the authority and the power. But now we see it clearly spoken 
that Jesus is the only one who brings salvation. In verse 12, where he talks about that name, he says, by which men must be saved. It's like a, I think Peter is using almost like a play on words here. He knows that in the vernacular of the day, the language of the day, this idea of being saved, it could be speaking about somebody's physical healing, and they just saw a physical healing. Uh, of the lame man, or it could refer to a spiritual healing. It's like a double meaning here in some way. So what he's doing is he is taking the manifestation of God's power through this lame man and the healing there, and he's saying, now what can happen also is that God has the power not only to heal people physically, but God has the ultimate power to heal people spiritually. And the only way that spiritual healing can come is through the name of Jesus. He connects those two together. Very clearly. I, I don't see how you could argue with me this day on, on, on this verse. I'm sure some of you might try, but I believe very clearly here it says, there is no other way to salvation but Jesus. I, I don't know how else you cut this verse. It speaks to the exclusive nature of salvation through Jesus alone. But that seems so out of place today, does it not? I mean, in our culture. I know it's not out of place for us. But in our culture, especially where we are now, it seems so out of place to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. There's been an, not just a rejection of that truth. There has been an aggressive pushback on that truth. But I want to remind you that this message was, it was out of place in the New Testament world as well. Think of how, to, how out of place it must have been right there at the Sanhedrin. He's looking around all these guys, these guys who basically passed the death sentence for Jesus. And he said, oh, by the way, you know, the only way you can be saved is through Jesus. Yeah, I'm sure that went over real well, huh? The guy you crucified, the guy you rejected, the guy you tried to lead a coup against, he's the only way you can be saved. So it was out of place in the Sanhedrin. It was out of place in Judaism itself, or at least the traditional Judaism of the day. It was out of place even in the Gentile world when they'll go out and preach. There was a lot of relativism. As, as a matter of fact, most in their culture and their paganism, they would say, hey, as long as you're doing what you're doing, it's okay. Don't worry about all this other stuff. You know, uh, you're, you're good. You can have Jesus, uh, you know, just as long as he's kind of part of the rest of the pantheon of gods. Just as long as he's part of the rest of the deities. It's fine. But oh, when you start preaching this idea that Jesus alone, that's when it was out of context for the people of the day. And yet, not only did the disciples preach that Jesus was the only way, and they did. Don't miss it, okay? Don't try to reason it out. Don't try to... They preached Jesus was the only way. Not only did, Jesus, did the disciples preach that Jesus was the only way, Jesus himself said it, did he not? In John chapter 10, he said, I'm the door. What's the door? It's like a way to get in or out of something. He says, I'm the door. And he even says, if you try to go around the door, if you're trying to do anything else, 
then you're nothing but a robber and a thief. It's the words of Jesus. For example, you come over my house and I see you coming through my window. I'm not going to take that as a friendly act. You come through my door, that's a different thing. You're welcomed, you're brought in. Jesus said, I'm the door. You got to come through me. Don't be trying to climb in the window through your works. Don't be trying to accept another God and coming through, coming through the upper window there to get into my house. He said, you're trying to do that. You're nothing but a robber and a thief. I'm the door. That's an exclusive statement. Again, John will record for us the words of Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Are you sure those definite articles... Even if they aren't definite articles, I think they are. But if they're not, listen to what else Jesus says. No man comes unto the Father except through me. It is an exclusive claim. Later on, Paul will say, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. One man, one God, one mediator. The writer of Hebrews will say this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? How can we begin to think we will escape if we will reject him? It's such a great salvation, and it is only through him. Now, I know, again, there are so many objections, and let me give these to you very quickly before we close. So many objections to what I'm preaching this morning. Some say you're just narrow-minded. You're just narrow-minded to think that salvation only comes through Jesus. If I am, at least I'm in good company. Because I'm in the company of the apostles. I'm in the company of Jesus. You're just narrow-minded. I believe in being open-minded. I believe in it. I know some of you don't think that, but I believe we ought to be open-minded. But Dr. James Travis up in Blue Mountain used to tell the guys... Don't be so open-minded that your brain falls out. (laughs) Be open-minded. But guys, some of you today said, but look at other religions. Aren't there some good people there? Look, there are a lot of people that do some good things according to what we see, what we, from our perspective, people do good things. I'm, I'm not saying people are Not people saying they're as bad as they could be. Some people do good things. Goodness doesn't save you, though. Let me just say this. You can be Baptist and be good and still be lost. See, see, it's not just me saying I'm exclusive to other faiths and religions. I'll tell you, you can be a Baptist on the role of a church and still be as lost as could be. If you think you're going to get there by goodness. Your own merit. I didn't say that people are as bad as they could be. I'm going to say to you that we're as bad off as we can be without the Lord Jesus. What do I mean by that? That we're all, we're all condemned. Because one sin makes us a sinner, condemned to death and punishment. And everybody in here, look, I, I look and I know many of you, and I know some of you are good folks, but you, you bunch of sinners. You know that, don't you? 
I could enumerate some of your sins for you. I can enumerate mine. Again, aren't, aren't some sincere though? We talked about this last week. And I'll just say the same thing I did then. You can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. Case in point, the Sadducees. Right? Sincerely wrong. You can be sincere in what you believe. Sincerity is a necessity of salvation, but it is not, it is not sufficient alone. You must be sincere about the truth. Well, but don't these other faiths and religions teach that Jesus is a good teacher? Yes, many of them do. But that is not enough. Jesus was not just a good teacher. He was the God-man. He was the Savior. He was the perfect one that brought us salvation. Well, should we, I mean, should we just be so exclusive Understand that everybody has a set of morality. Everybody does. And in some sense, everybody is exclusive. I know people say, oh, no, I'm not. Yes, they are. You get to digging down in them. They'll tell you what they believe is right and what they believe is wrong. Hey, even the statement is contradictory and illogical. You know that idea that, well, there, is, there are no absolute truths. Really? You absolutely true about that or confident in that? Isn't that even illogical and inconsistent? Everybody has some type of standard and belief. What we believe is that Jesus is the only way. And I say to you that while relativism will enslave people to their sins and truth will set them free, this pluralistic theology that's going around, that's creeping into our pews, that's even being preached out of some of our pulpits, that this pluralistic theology will enslave people to their sins still. It is Christ Jesus who frees them. We must not forget that. Because if we buy into what we are being fed in this culture, in this world, we will forget our purpose of sharing the gospel. Or at the very least, we will not see a need in it. Because this kind of thinking that there are other ways to salvation it will discourage or even prohibit evangelism and missions. On February the 5th, the Barna Group does a lot of research, but they put out a new poll. I don't talk about polls very often or their research very often, but this one alarmed me because it was just last week or so. I knew this message was coming up. On February the 5th, their research showed this, quote, among U.S. millennials who are practicing Christians, millennials who are practicing Christians, 47% agree with this statement. Or 40% agree, that is, that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. 47% of those practicing Christians surveyed said, we believe it is wrong for us to share our faith with somebody of another faith because we don't want to somehow violate who they are. Can you not hear how alarming that is? Can you not see how the church, 
or those who call themselves the church here in the United States of America are capitulating to the philosophies and the theologies of this world. Peter and John, they said there was no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. That is still the gospel today. There are some good people in other religious traditions. But goodness will not get them to heaven. Goodness will not free them from their sins. Only our Lord. Only the name of Jesus. And listen, our God is one who is not just comfortable with the ones we have now. He does not want to be worshipped by one ethnic group. He does not want to be worshipped just simply by this select group of individuals. What he's working toward, as I talked about last Sunday night, is a world filled with his glory. He desires, and listen to me, above all, he deserves to be worshipped by all of the nations on this planet. There is no place for other idols or gods or religions. He is the only name that brings authority. He is the only name that brings salvation. And we must take that good news to everyone we come in contact with and to all nations on the face of this earth. It is the reason we give to missions It is the reason we talk to our brothers and sisters in our communities about Christ. Because as Carl F. Henry said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. That's the only time it's truly good news. There's no other name. The apostles suffered. Read the rest of this book. They suffered because they believed this. They died because they believed there was one truth and there was one Savior. If there had been any other way, do you think that they would have taken on such persecution and even faced death itself? No. They knew this was it. And if this was it for them, it must be it for us. It still applies. He is our only authority. He is our only salvation. And when it's all said and done, there's only one name that still matters, that really matters. It is the name of Jesus. My friends, this morning, have you given your life to that Lord that can save you? Have you given yourself fully to him? Today, are you slipping? Let me just ask you this. Are you conforming to what the world is trying to teach you? Or is your mind being molded into this this image, into these philosophies of the world? I say to you today, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen to God's word and be obedient. May we ever be faithful.
to proclaim his name to others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for sending the one and only Jesus for us. Thank you for giving us salvation. And Lord, we know today we do not take it lightly in this place. It's only through you that we have life and being and forgiveness and redemption. Help us to respond in worship. God, also help us to respond in obedience, to stand just as boldly as Peter and John did and to share, to share with others the grace of your son. God, speak to us now through this invitation in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?